0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. So, the singer Gregory Porter recorded a great album a little while ago. It's all covers of songs that were popularized by Nat King Cole. Porter called it Nat King, Cole, and Me. It's a very beautiful record. And it wouldn't surprise you to know that Porter spent a lot of time researching the music of Nat King Cole. His records, his books, watching documentaries. Cole, who was black, recorded a lot of his biggest hits in the 1950s, right when the civil rights movement was heating up. And those songs were beautiful, affecting songs, but they weren't explicitly political or socially conscious. And Cole's legacy has taken some heat for that. But Gregory Porter says it's not that simple.
2: You know, people think about his, his lyrics and like, oh, he's, you know, he's in the sky and he's, he's you know, it's just so, you know, milk toast and sweet. But think about a song like Pick Yourself Up, Dust Yourself Off and Start All Over Again. Think about that song for somebody who had been pushed down, who had been mistreated, who had been punched or kicked or bitten in the civil rights struggle pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again, it means something totally different to them. Totally different. It means something totally different to my mother.
1: It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk more about Nat King Cole with Gregory Porter. He'll also tell me about his mom, a street minister, and one of the most generous people he's ever known.
2: She would meet people and if they seemed like a like like good people that just had fallen down for some reason. They were coming to the house, and my mother was going to clean them up, and was going to you know, give them good food, and was going to get them physically and mentally, try to get them back on their feet. And, and uh, there were so many uh, of those episodes.
1: But before that, Susan Orlean, one of the greatest reporters of our time, and I mean that, just wrote a new book about the history of the Los Angeles Public Library's main branch. Which today is a historic, elegant structure in the heart of downtown. But that wasn't always the case.
3: Los Angeles, at that point, had a library that was on the upper floor of a department store. (laughs) And you would ride the elevator along with people who were going shopping for
1: brassiers. And finally, for the outshot, a simple, brilliant example of the art of sketch comedy writing. And the art of hot dog eating. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm so excited to welcome Susan Orlean back to our show. Susan is a staff writer at The New Yorker. She's also appeared in Vogue and Esquire on This American Life. She's the author of eight books covering topics like New England, Saturday Night in America, and Orchid Fanatics. The last one, The Orchid Thief, ended up being the basis of the Academy Award-nominated film Adaptation. Susan is a disarming interviewer, a meticulous researcher, and a beautiful writer. These days, she lives here in Los Angeles, where we make our show. And being an author and a reader, she has visited the beautiful historic Central Library here dozens and dozens of times. Her latest book is about that library and its history, and particularly about the devastating fire— that almost demolished the library in 1986. The book is also kind of a pay-on to libraries everywhere, what they mean to her, what they mean to us, and why every library is a vital institution. The book is called The Library Book. It's one of my favorites I've read this year. Susan Orlean, uh, welcome back to Bullseye. Always happy to see you.
3: Oh, it's great to be with you.
1: Susan, what is your relationship with libraries personally? other than your obvious financial relationship uh, with right. libraries
3: <laughs> <laughs> one would hope yeah um well i grew up going to the library that was very much a part of my childhood my parents were great library goers they didn't really believe in buying books they i think they felt like why would you buy a book you can go to the library and borrow the book and if it's not in you put your name on a hold list, and you get it when it's available. And they were born in the Depression, and I'm sure that's a lot of it, which is that buying books seemed like a bit of an indulgence that wasn't necessary. I grew up going to the library a couple times a week with my mom, and I found it absolutely magical. It was not like going to a bookstore or toy store. It was partly because There was no money. There was no financial relationship. And when you're a kid, the idea that you can have anything you want is really intoxicating.
1: And a library is on a real short list of places that welcome everyone, including kids who are a hassle.
3: Right. (laughs) Well, and I do think that in the last 20 years, we've, as a society, become more and more conscious, a kind of – Call it the Starbucks effect. We've become conscious of how there's home and there's your workplace and there's kind of a desire for another place, somewhere to go, somewhere to see other humans and just sort of share the space with them. It's, I think it's why people go to co-working spaces. I think it's why people go to public parks, even if they've got a backyard. There's something very special about being somewhere around other people, and you're not there to interact with them. You're just sharing the space with them. And that's definitely some a quality of libraries. I mean, their closest analog is probably a public park you know there's surf- there're things to do in a park and there's you know god knows what that the city offers but sometimes it's just kind of nice to be there and there are other people there it's also a space that we share with a variety of people it's not a mediated group of people it's a chance that you're going to encounter a huge range of people which for some it's kind of discomforting, but for other people, you can make the argument that it's kind of an opportunity to really see your community. You
1: have written for The New Yorker for 30-some years. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh And you were a New Yorker for a long time. How did your experience of living in Los Angeles compare to your expectations about Los Angeles?
3: I had traveled here a lot over the years before I moved here and had been downtown once as far as I knew um, my expectation of Los Angeles was that I would never spend time downtown and at the time I moved here which is now seven years ago downtown was just on the brink of really changing and revitalizing and repopulating I never imagined that I would be doing a book about the library. I moved to Los Angeles because my husband was asked to help with the company that was starting up. And we thought, oh, that'd be fun. We'll go for a year. We'll get some nice weather and go back to New York at the end of the year. In the course of being here, I was given a tour of the downtown library. And first of all, I thought, oh, my God, this building is amazing. It's a beautiful building and a very eccentric interesting piece of architecture 1920s era but inflected with all of this sort of egyptian and moroccan kind of uh, aesthetic it's it's a really interesting building so i was kind of struck immediately just about what a cool building it was and how i had never been downtown to see it But walking through the library and thinking, boy, this is just an incredible repository of amazing stories. I was being told some of the stories of uh, various city librarians who had run the library over the years, many of whom were incredibly eccentric, fascinating figures. And I found myself just being drawn in more and more thinking, oh, my God, this is an amazing place. Somebody should write about this not thinking that somebody was me. Um, and right at that moment, the person giving me the tour had pulled one of the books off a shelf and took a deep whiff of the book. I thought, well, I guess I'm in a new city where people do things like smell books. And I, I kind of dismissed it until he said, well, you can still smell the smoke in some of them. And I thought, wow, they used to let people smoke in the library? That seemed very bold. And I said, well, you know, was this back when they allowed smoking? And he said, no, they didn't ever allow smoking in the building. It was from the fire. I said, what fire? And he said, the big fire, the big fire in 1986. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, well, the big fire closed the library down for seven years. And... You know, he moved on, and I was going, like, what? what? Stop. Stop! What? No, no, don't. I don't want to see the next room. I want to hear about this fire. That was the moment where that frame of this is a great story really, truly clicked into place and became a real story in my head, which was I wanted to write about the library, and in this case, the library had had this dramatic event that really f- shaped it in many ways, and it coalesced into a real story for me. And I knew immediately. I just thought, I'm doing a book about this.
1: So your book has a few lines of inquiry in it. One of them is uh, sort of uh, behind the scenes at the library. You. Uh, skulking from department to department, Mm -hmm. um, figuring out all the interesting things that that happened in a a library. One of them is the history of its directors, which is possible since it's only existed for 130 years or whatever it is. And one of the directors that stood out to me was Charles Lummis. The thing that I think is really particularly fascinating about Lummis is that makes him so important to this story is that really his role in the history of Los Angeles and partly in the history of America is as an advocate for an American identity that represented this part of America. Right. That it was like more than Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. Mm-hmm. But it included the Navajo and it included the Miwok and it included all the, and the the Spanish. That seems like a big deal. And it seems like part of maybe why they thought it was a good idea for him to run the library, despite him having no (laughs) library experience because the library in part maybe was an assertion of identity.
3: I think that he, he is really important in that sense that Los Angeles was no longer, certainly as he could influence it, not no longer trying to ape the culture of New York or Philadelphia or Chicago, but instead was having a sense of itself as a distinct place with its own identity. It's funny for us to imagine now, seeing Los Angeles as it is now, that. The idea that you would build buildings that had a Spanish influence, that was just not done. You were trying—before at, at before this identity really kind of took hold, it was an effort to make L.A. look like the big cities of the Northeast. A sense of history of what had been here and who had been here was—that was new. I mean, his influence to say— This is what Los Angeles is. He was the founder of the Southwest Museum. That stuff wasn't being collected or preserved in any way. It was very radical, actually, what he did. And it's interesting because he didn't grow up here. He was definitely a transplant. But he really, truly fell in love with the essential old California character of this this amalgam of Spanish culture and Native American culture, and and the new culture of people moving in and identifying it and really preserving it and celebrating it.
1: Yeah, like most of the the most of the important books of the early Los Angeles Library, at least as you describe it, and I believe you are about citrus fruits
3: <laughs> right <laughs> and sheep herding yeah. and yeah i mean the the initial i mean it gives you a real sense of the difference in what was going on in la at the turn of the century versus new york city which had a well established library that was already um, building a collection of important literary works the Among the initial purchases of the L.A. Library when it was an association was formed to have a library happen were books about citrus, about beekeeping. I mean, this was a country town. If it was a couple thousand people. It was not a significant city. And then one of the other themes that continued, which was interesting, is that the library existed in rented space for a very long time.
1: Yeah, I mean, people, it's, uh, obviously, you can just imagine what the New York Public Library, the main branch of the New York Public Library, looks like. That was the giant libraries of New York and Boston and all these cities yeah. that had been cities since the you know, 18th century.
3: And in the meantime, Los Angeles, at that point had a library that was on the upper floor of a department store. <laughs> and you would ride the elevator along with the people who were going shopping for brassiers. And, you know, they they would get off on the Brazier floor or the floor with children's clothing, and you would ride on up and go to the library. And one of the – it was a, a cause for much embarrassment in the city, this feeling that, well, L.A. couldn't possibly be – an intellectual center if it didn't have a library.
1: Let's talk about the fire that destroyed a substantial portion of the central library and particularly a substantial portion of the collection. Um, it was driven by these stacks that basically functioned at like a like a charcoal chimney <laughs> for your barbecue or grill and the the fire was absolutely catastrophic w- what was the proportion of books that were destroyed and or damaged by this fire
3: there were a million books either destroyed or damaged and that was about um a little more than 50% of the entire collection 400,000 were they were vaporized, basically. I mean, this was a fire that burned for seven and a half hours. It reached temperatures of 2,500 degrees. And as you say, it's the stacks, which were the the area where the books that aren't out on the open shelves, are stored in these stacks. And that's typical for a library. But the division between the different tiers within the stack, um, rather than being a ceiling, which would keep a fire Contained, They were open grating so that the fire basically just—these are seven tiers tall, and the fire simply just blasted through all seven tiers. It, it couldn't have been a better setup for a fire.
1: I mean, this was a fire where these spaces had grown so hot that firefighters were having to leave after like five and ten minutes simply because they couldn't physically— be there just because it got so hot inside the building.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing. They had these oxygen canisters that would normally last an hour, and they were breathing so heavily because they were so hot that the canisters were lasting about 10 minutes. And they went through more than a 1,000 of these oxygen canisters, and they had to keep swapping the teams out because nobody it, – it was just too hot to be in there 2,500 degrees doesn't matter if you're in a a fire suit. It's just unbearable. At one point, over half of the entire city of Los Angeles fire department was working to try to put this fire out. And they ended up relying on the county to staff the firehouses around the city because nobody was around. They were all at the library trying to put the fire out and they needed somebody to be there in case someone else, someone's house caught on fire. I mean, it was a very, really difficult fire and almost every firefighter I spoke to said they never fought a fire that was as challenging and as fierce as this fire. It was, I think, for many of them, the, the, the sort of, I I don't want to say the highlight of their career, because obviously it wasn't something they were joyful about, but it was the most intense experience of their careers.
1: More with Susan Orlean after a quick break. They never convicted anyone of starting the 1986 library fire. Susan will tell me why when she started her library book, she thought she could solve the case. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Rosetta Stone. Anyone can speak a new language with the right tools. Built by experts, not crowdsourcing, Rosetta Stone goes beyond simple vocabulary by preparing you to have real-life conversations in more than 24 languages. Lessons sync across your phone, tablet, and desktop so you can learn anywhere at your own pace. With Rosetta Stone, you'll speak out, not freak out. Start for free at rosettastone.com NPR. Rosetta Stone, speak for yourself.
3: I'm Linda Holmes. There's more stuff to watch these days than you can ever get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we give you the lowdown on what's worth your time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I listen to reading glasses because Bria and Mallory have great tips.
3: You're a comics reader and you want to use a library-connected app. You can try out Hoopla. I listen for the author interviews.
4: I'm mad at myself that I waited as long as I did to start reading Joan Didion. They give
0: me reading advice I didn't even know I needed.
3: If you go in person to an event and go up to an author or a filmmaker or anybody and tell them what you don't like about their work, you're a trash baby. Look, I understand you didn't like Heroes Season 3. That's fine. I (laughs) I don't actually need to know that information. I'm Bria Grant. And I'm Mallory O'Mara. We're Reading Glasses, and we solve all your bookish problems every Thursday on Maximum Fun.
1: Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Here with me now, Susan Orlean. She writes for The New Yorker, has done for about 30 years, a bunch of other publications as well. Her books include The Orchid Thief, Rin Tin Tin, and Saturday Night. Her newest tells the story of the Los Angeles Public Library and so much more. It's called The Library Book. It hits bookstores this week. The arson investigators eventually decided that arson had been the cause of the fire. Who was the person who was accused of having started it?
3: A young man in his 20s named Harry Peake, who was, um, I guess, predictably a wannabe actor Aaron Boy, um, you know, did odd jobs, park cars, that kind of thing um, was well what what happened was he had told a number of friends that he had started the fire, so very quickly uh, once there was a reward associated with anyone having providing a tip for solving the fire, uh, one of his friends. Good to have friends like that. Came forward and um, basically connected the fire department to him, and they began following him around. Then ended up um, interviewing him to figure out whether his boasts of having started the fire were were in fact true.
1: Because he was a charming liar.
3: He was – from every description I had from anybody, he was an immensely likable guy, charming, and just a crazy fibber and would just fib about stupid things, not – just fib. You'd say, where where have you been? And he'd say, oh, I was having drinks with Cher. You know, he just couldn't tell a straight story. And his friends – would it were exasperated by him, and at the same time also said he was a really good guy. He would give you the shirt off his back and that was interesting to me. They all used that exact expression: He would give you the shirt off his back. He was beloved and also drove them crazy so in a way, this is what
1: might be called a true crime narrative, I guess so. <laughs> And I wonder if you felt pressured by the fact that you were telling a crime story to have a narrative that resolved comfortably, to provide an answer to the question.
3: I, I did. I First of all, I thought, I'm going to solve this, which is utterly vain. <laughs> I mean... There, There's no way that a civilian with no access to the evidence and no knowledge of how to investigate an arson would be able to crack the case. But that was my first thought. Was, I'm going to solve this. Um, and...
1: Maybe if you had a ragtag band of friends.
3: Yeah, right. And like you'd a say, special van. Yes. Come on, guys. And a big dog, right? Yeah. Isn't that the, the yeah. Scooby-Doo premise? Mm-hmm. But um, I'm fairly comfortable with the idea that I don't have to come to a final conclusion. And it may be out of... The reality of so many of the things I write about don't have a tidy conclusion, or don't resolve in the way that I might have expected them to resolve. In this case, I think following the different possible outcomes, it's a bit of a choose your own adventure and and you come to your own conclusion, essentially, uh, because there's no way to re-examine the evidence at this point. What I've tried to do is lay out all of those different paths of thought that could lead you to a conclusion. It may be that when I wrote The Orchid Thief and I was determined to see a ghost orchid and as time was growing short and I thought, oh, my God, the book is ruined. I'm never going to see a ghost orchid. And I finally had a deadline that I had to make and I didn't see one suddenly it seemed like well of course i'm not going to see one that's that's the point it's it doesn't matter that i'm not going to see it 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 would never match the anticipation of seeing it so it was the first experience i had of a non conclusion conclusion and in its own way it felt i mean it is the reality it it the fact is without giving anything away it's it's not possible to come to a conclusion i mean my my notion that i would solve it being something that very quickly i realized well that's nuts but it isn't possible to ultimately know what happened and i was comfortable finally thinking that's okay i'm giving you the different paths of thought and and um Maybe you see the one of them being the persuasive one.
1: Well, Susan Orlean, I really loved your book and I always love having you on the show. Thank you so much for coming over and taking the time.
3: Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure.
1: Susan Orlean, her book, The Library Book, hits bookstores this week. I loved it so much. It's one of those books where Susan has such a keen eye for character detail and details of story that when i was reading it next to my wife i would pick out just a little thing that susan wrote on every page and force my wife to listen to me reading it she uh, that is susan came to max funcon a couple of years ago this event that we put on once a year and she gave a talk uh, called finding the extraordinary in the ordinary and it was about how she feels like she can go to almost any place and find something special, a story that's worth writing in that place. And she's such a remarkable person that I believe she can do it. Uh, you can watch that talk totally for free uh, on the Maximum Fun YouTube channel or just by searching for Susan Orlean MaxFunCon. And of course, we'll post a link to that on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, Gregory Porter. Gregory is an award-winning jazz singer. He has sold a bunch of albums, and the route that he took to get there is really unique. He was an offensive lineman in college. Then, during his junior year, his football career ended. He got hurt. When he was in college, he was a guy who could sing, but he wasn't really a singer. He didn't really think of it as a career path. That changed when his mom, literally from her deathbed, told him to start singing. He moved to New York with his brother and recorded the album Water in 2010. And that's the other unique thing about his career. Whereas most young jazz singers start their careers singing standards, Porter recorded an album of mostly originals, like this song, Magic Cup.
2: I just can't stop thinking about you All day long I can't do without you You give me you taste of truth, cause you're my magic. Every day and every way, cause you're my magic. You are a good time make me feel nice You are a perfect fix in the morning with silver and spice You give me insight into my mind looking into your black mirror before I pour you inside
1: now, almost a decade later, he's laid down an album of standards. Nat King Cole and Me plays tribute to one of the greatest jazz singers of all time. It's music that Gregory grew up on. Music his mother grew up on, too. And of course, Gregory sounds gorgeous singing these beautiful songs. Here he is singing Nat King Cole's Smile.
2: Smile though your heart is aching Smile even though When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by. If you smile through your fears and sorrow, smile and maybe tomorrow, you'll see the sun come shining through.
1: Gregory Porter, I am so happy to have you on Bullseye. Thank you so much for coming in here. It's a real pleasure to be here, man. Thank you. So you're in town from Bakersfield where you live. Yeah. And you you know, you lived in Los Angeles when you were a young kid, but you kinda grew up in Bakersfield.
2: Yeah, that's correct.
1: I've spent a little bit of time in Bakersfield lately because it's in between here and I have a cabin in the Sequoia. So okay. I stop in Bakersfield. Yeah. Get some ice cream at the Doers Candy Shop. Oh yeah, okay, now you're talking. But what's up with Bakersfield? Like for people who just think maybe like Buck Owens or something, right? Or an oil derrick,
2: (laughs) right? (laughs) And those things are like very important in Bakersfield. It's an agriculture community. It's um, it's a small community, yet it's you know, it's over four hundred thousand, and it's quite spread out now. There's a lot of new construction where the cotton fields used to be my mother used to pick cotton when she was a little girl there in in Bakersfield but Bakersfield is is um i feel like it's a city in change racially and and politically but it is a uh, a fascinating place i just moved back there after you know Twenty years, and I've been there for for a couple of years now, and I'm re- rediscovering a place that that I was raised in. Um, so I'm still trying to to figure out what it is, but in the meantime, in figuring out what it is, there's some uh, extraordinary Mexican food, <laughs> which is you know in every corner, and I love that. And um, uh, but it is still an agriculture uh, based. Agriculture and oil is enormously in, important there, and uh, and it's you know a lot of working
1: class people. The feeling of Bakersfield is you know you're you're not very far from Los Angeles. You know, yeah, it's an hour hour and a half away. Yeah, and it's a big city of four hundred thousand people, as you said. Yeah. You are not surprised when you are there that it was, you know, the birthplace of a, a whole subgenre of country and Western music because it is it's hot the yeah. you know, streets are wide yeah. and you can see a long way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. it has that open, dusty feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's
2: funny. It is a thing. It's a transplantation of the South it it is and uh the the people that gravitated there um the uh, the agriculture that was uh uh found root there uh a lot of the people
1: cuz it's the start of this of the central valley essentially the, yeah. of california yeah. where you know whatever it is 45% of the produce in the united states is grown
2: yeah yeah
1: and and
2: so the black the black population that came they came for work, um, Texas Louisiana Arkansas there was you know the migration that that, that from the south that went uh, to the north it went to uh, Chicago and uh, Detroit uh, but there was also that group of the family that came uh, that from Louisiana Arkansas Texas you know Mississippi that came west. And uh, Bakersfield was one of the places that they settled because there was agriculture work. The, the interesting thing for me is I caught the last bit of the black uh, migrant workers, uh, black field workers, uh, who who uh, who pitched watermelons and who cut watermelons, uh, who picked fruit. That doesn't exist anymore, really, that population. And they had songs, they had culture. And I met those guys. My mother had a uh, a, essentially a rooming house uh, where those guys stayed. Um, And I I hung out with them. And they were characters. Frenchie, Alleyoop, oop Skoket, Chief. And they were all these interesting characters, but they worked the fruit. They worked. They pitched watermelons. They don't even I don't even know if they harvest the fruit like that anymore. But but it was a line of men who who pitched the fruit. (laughs)
1: Your mom was a minister, a preacher, both in Los Angeles when you were young and when you were a little older and a teenager in Bakersfield. Mm-hmm. What kind of church did she preach in? It's the Church of God in Christ,
2: uh, which is it's an offshoot of, uh, uh, you know, the Holiness, uh, a Pentecostal, you know. For her, what was important was going directly to the people. She was a, a street minister, and her establishments were always called missions because she, first of all she had a mission and she wanted her places of worship to be a place where people could come in any condition so consequently we all, all of uh the, the the houses of worship that we had were storefront churches they were uh and what i mean by that was like not a purpose built church it's this was this was maybe a, i think the the first one we had on Lakeview Avenue in Bakersfield was uh, a cafe converted into a church. You know, we built an altar and uh, put a big air conditioner in there, and there we go. There, put some chairs. That's the church.
1: Um, I imagine your family must have been central to a church, given how big it was. Yeah, it must have been <laughs> <laughs> your brothers and sisters and your mom. You know, we started, started setting up the concession stand. You, and you, I mean, you, passing
2: out the collection plates and you already start off with a congregation you know you got eight kids <laughs> and that's your con- you already got a choir you know
1: and um i imagine you also though already have somebody to sweep up afterwards and yeah absolutely everybody pitches in
2: we were her work we were her her crew it was you know it was a family it was a family thing and we we didn't realize it, it was like okay a church is the family business. Real estate is the family business. Singing is the family business. You know, but you don't do it. It's just like oh, this is what we grew up doing. And um, but she had a, a a conviction on her life, and we kind of all had to follow. And we we thought it was normal until we realized okay, nobody else really picks up homeless people off the streets and take them home like we did. I remember my friends coming over sometimes, and and we're like, who's that man? And it's like this is a you know my mother would would have projects she would she would she would redeem try to redeem people she would meet people and if they seemed like a like like a good people that just had fallen down for some reason they were coming to the house and my mother was going to clean them up was going to you know give them good food was going to get them physically and mentally try to get them back on their feet and and uh, there were so many uh, of those episodes and so. From that comes a song from me called "You Know Take Me to the Alley." The alley is a is a real street in Bakersfield. It's Lakeview Avenue, a Cottonwood Road. The road is what they used to call it. That's where she she started her her ministry in a way. It was the worst street. It was the street that had the most problems, the most drugs, the most people stumbling around in, in the days of life. And she would go to those people. Those are the first people that I sang to. I'm I'm you know, you know, the Royal Albert Hall and Hollywood Bowl is, is amazing. But really the first people that confirmed me were people that had a bottle of, of wine in their hand, Thunderbird, Night Train, and they confirmed me by saying, Yeah, baby, you got something, you know. <laughs> and and that and the funny thing is, is it meant something to me then, uh singing to them out on uh the street corner. It's, it sounds like a romantic, made-up story, but the, you know, yeah, that's what that's what we, she was like. Let's we would have a church service outdoors on the sidewalk. She wanted to be where the people were. Take me to the alley. Yeah. Well, let's hear that song. Take me to the alley. Take me to the afflicted ones. Take me to the lonely ones That somehow
4: lost their way
2: Let them hear me say I am your friend Come to my table Rest here in my garden.
1: You will have a party. Even more with Gregory Porter. Don't go anywhere. After a short break, his voice gets compared to Bill Withers pretty frequently. He'll tell me what he thinks about that. This show is bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Squarespace destiny is calling it says you need a new website easily create a website by yourself with the help of 24 7 award-winning customer support head to squarespace.com slash bullseye for a free trial and when you're ready to launch use the offer code bullseye to save 10 percent off your first purchase of a website or domain keep dreaming but make it a reality with a website from squarespace
0: What happens when a family decides to adopt a child of a different race? All of my life, my parents have told me I'm just like my brother and sisters. But I wasn't, and I'm not. This week on Code Switch, transracial adoptees speak for themselves. Hi, I'm Paula Poundstone. And I'm Adam Felber. Adam, I haven't gotten one thing done today. Well,
4: let me see your to-do list. Ah, yeah, well, here. Make 30-second promo for Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, so at least you're getting that done. Score! Except you haven't said what the show's about.
0: We're like a comedy field guide to life starring me and you. I give useful advice and we have real experts to talk about things like how to keep a friend or what to do when you encounter a bear.
4: Bully for you, but you haven't said where people can find the show.
0: Oh, MaximumFun.org or wherever you find your podcasts.
1: You're listening to Bullseye. I am Jesse Thorne. My guest, Gregory Porter, is a Grammy-winning jazz singer and songwriter. His latest album, Nat King, Cole and Me, is out now. You went to college on a football scholarship. Yeah. Um and got hurt almost right away. Yeah. And couldn't play football anymore. Yeah. Did you at the time that you got hurt, did you think of yourself as a football player? Like was that the top thing in your identity?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's um the self identity, especially when you're on a college campus uh you know Especially at San Diego State, you plopped onto a campus with thirty thousand students, and um, you know who are you and what are you? That yeah, that was my identity. I walked around with you know with Aztec gear and you know things that that signified I was I was on the team, and um,
1: and there was no mistake. I mean, you're a big man sitting in front of me right now, like yeah. I think you I imagine you cut a figure, yeah, your alignment that was yeah. what I'm saying you're, yeah, yeah, we're not talking about a little tailback <laughs> here
2: yeah this this uh this was my uh this was my identity, and uh but the funny thing is is I think everything happens for a reason i uh, i I injured my 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 shoulder early in my athletic career in college, and so you're left without that self identity. I mean, I couldn't run without my shoulder shaking around in its socket. So I was like, you know, and after, you know, uh months and months of therapy, it didn't get any better and then you know, I was like, okay, so I'm not an athlete anymore. What is my identity? And I went right back to this is yes I was a I was a I was a student, but this, this what's the extra thing? What's the what's the other thing, you know? And I went back to my first love, my original love, the, one, the thing that was really always there through, throughout anything. And that was, uh, that was music. And I started to immerse myself in that and uh, immerse myself in the music of, of, of Nat King Cole. Um, I went to the, the music listening library at uh, San Diego State and I just checked out just a stack of, of Nat's records and I, and I listened and I re-listened and it it brought me back to my childhood it brought me back to to my mother the environment of my home as a as a child and um it was it was really something um self-medicating with music because at the same time I had injured myself i had found that my mother uh was uh dying of, of breast cancer that had spread throughout her body and and so I needed some, some pick-me-up. I needed some smile. I needed some, you know, pretend you're happy when you're blue. I needed these, these songs, of powerful encouragement and even escapism. I needed it.
1: And, uh, and, I, and I found it in, in Nat's music again. <laughs> I mean, to me, the incredible thing about Nat King Cole's records is, you know, he's so profoundly elegant. as a a musician, Mm -hmm. as a man as well. I mean, a gorgeous guy. Yeah, yeah. But a a man for whom, you know, his career as a black entertainer who was working in uh, the, you know, broad pop music world in the early 1950s, you know, he was very unusual in that. Mm -hmm. His manner is characterized by a kind of forbearance. You know, like all of those all of those slings and arrows are translated into a feeling of like no matter what I am transcendent. It's something that is like awe inspiring about him, yeah you know it's also i think for a lot of people, it's the thing that they least connect with about him because they wish he was mad about it.
2: Yeah. You know. <laughs> Nat for me, you know, people talk about well I don't did he was he expressing himself uh in a uh in a way that it it advanced uh you know, black people but you know, you can you could say that just by checking out some of the things that he uh, you know how forceful was he was he on the front lines of in, in, in marching just his being there his eloquence, his genius, Nat, this is a thing, Nat knew exactly who he was, he was the darkest of dark, he knew he exactly who he was and he knew he was, you know there was a perception of the perceived threat in his blackness but he took it and he graced it so beautifully and even it it even affected some of the songs that he chose to sing the idea of singing love songs to love love songs to humanity uh, universal love smile nature boy Pick yourself up this type of song in a way is is uniquely connected to him because they're love songs to love and to life, and that's profoundly affected me, but in a way, it was a thing that he in some in some way had to do because you know swooning after Nat King Cole was not a popular thing for you know many parents and many people's minds at the time, you know in some ways, I called him. The the, you know, original Barack Obama, because he he knew who he was and he knew how he had to, uh, you know, traverse this world and he knew he had to do it with grace. And he did. And he still got his message across. Now, I think about, you know, people think about his his lyrics and was like, oh, he's, you know, he's in the sky and he's he's, you know, it's just so, you know, Milk toast and sweet. But think about a song like pick yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again. Think about that song for somebody who had been pushed down, who had been mistreated, who had been punched or kicked or bitten in the civil rights struggle. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again means something totally different to them. Totally different. It means something totally different to my mother. Smile, though your heart is aching, means something totally different to her. You know, uh, to to the people that are on the underneath, to the people who have been pushed down, many of Nat's songs mean something totally different. It's encouragement. It's optimism. And um, so when we talk about his contribution to people that are on the underneath, you absolutely have to consider these these lyrics that i hear now and that that still fortify people you have to think of that um so he had a he had a great great contribution you know the first uh first black man to have his own television show and and uh you know just the experiment of that was was really something extraordinary for uh, if you know for an
1: american culture that that wasn't uh wasn't so open to that you know? Well, let's hear my guest, Gregory Porter, singing Pick Yourself Up. His most recent record is called Nat King Cole and Me.
2: Pick yourself up. Take a deep breath. Dust yourself off. Start all over again. Nothing's impossible, I have found, for when my chin...
1: I hear you often compared to Bill Withers. You know, Bill Withers is, you know, maybe my favorite ever. <laughs> yeah, of any, I'm, of I'm anything. This, like,
2: be careful with those comparisons. So, you know I'm a child, and that's
1: a, you know, that's I'm,
2: that's that's the grandpa,
1: you know. And you know, I've I've spoken to him a couple of times. Yeah, and he's a. You know, he's a brilliant, brilliant man in general, not just musically. Yeah. And one of the things that I think ties your art and his is that both of you were men when you, in earnest, kicked off your careers. You know, Bill Withers had sung in the Navy— but he was a, he was a career in the Navy. Yeah. You know, he didn't he didn't put out his first record till he was about thirty. Yeah. You were in your late thirties when you put out yeah. your first record. Yeah. And that is a very different perspective on the world than the perspective of you know, even even when it's about falling in love, it's about a different kind of falling in love than when you're sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. No offense to when you're sixteen, that's also great. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what to say when I was
2: sixteen and seventeen and eighteen. I think you know, having a, a life seasoning and 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 ups and downs can uh, can inform your your art. Now there's some power and energy, you know, youth can give uh, to music. But there's also some power and energy and wisdom that uh, a life experience can can bring to music i hear it uh in in Bill Withers music and sometimes when i divorce myself from myself and i hear my music on a radio show or, or when somebody else is explaining it to me i'm like oh yeah yeah there is a depth that uh, uh, you know has a little bit you know than what you might hear from a from a 17 year old you know the world of music consists of ears that are 9 years old and that are 90 years old and so We've got to have something for for everybody and for every life experience and the, the ups and downs of love. All love is not this love that you experience at 22. And that's a great love. But, you know, when you're 22, you think you know it all. And then you become 32 and you're like, wow, I knew nothing when I was 22. And then when you're 42, you're like, wow, I knew nothing when I was 32 and when I was 22. You know what I'm saying? So I think <laughs> the music has to grow. As well. And uh, yeah, I think life experience and going through the ups and downs of all of it. Racism has informed my music, uh, mistreatment, discrimination, the ups and downs of love. Being dumped can inform the music, um, success can inform the music, um, you know, feeling having a, a a triumph whatever in whatever field can find its way into the music beauty nature you know just having visited many beautiful vistas that can can be something you can sing about or or even secretly put into the music it, and it doesn't even you're not even speaking of beautiful sunrises but the inspiration is in the music that's something, you know yeah
1: Well, Gregory Porter, I'm so grateful to you that you came in and took all this time to be on the show. I'm grateful to you for uh, you in your cocktail cuffs, (laughs) tolerating the fact that I'm here in sandals, sports sandals, no less. It's hot outside in Los Angeles. (laughs) Got on a nice scarf. You're accessorized in here.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's nice, man. You know, I had my concert last night, so that's all I have is concert <laughs> clothes. So this is what you get, baby. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Gregory. Yeah, thank you. Real pleasure. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you
1: would... Gregory Porter, folks. His newest album, movie. Nat King, Colin Me, is available everywhere. You can give it a listen. He is also a brilliant songwriter. If you want to hear some more of his original work, you can check out his previous albums, including 2016's Take Me to the Alley. We're getting near the end of this week's Bullseye, but before we go, a recommendation from me. It's The Outshot. So... When you are writing a comedy sketch, you try to find what is called the game, something distinctively funny that you can build on. The cheese shop doesn't have any cheese, Uh, two guys that are confused about baseball players' names, Uh, Jeopardy, but the people are dumb, that kind of thing. And then you take that kernel and you escalate it. You build it up. You've only got a few minutes, so you've only got a time to sketch out a couple of bits of context. You know, this lady is the president, this guy is a dentist, one guy is tall, the other guy's short, something like that. But great things can come out of simple premises and simple situations. Like this sketch by a sketch group called The Whitest Kids You Know. It's a doctor's office and the patient, Timmy, is shirtless and he's adorable, but he's a little soft around the midsection.
4: So, Timmy, I got your blood work in, and I have a couple of questions. Okay. Just about how many hot dogs do you eat a day?
0: How many hot dogs? Yeah. Ah, <sighs> uh, geez. I don't know. I mean, you know, some days I could eat a couple, and some days I don't eat any. Okay. Well,
4: let's just say for an average, take your whole week and try to figure out what your daily amount would
0: be. I have no idea. No, just try. Okay. Well, a whole week? Average per day would be something like, I don't know, seven?
1: The game here, of course, is Timmy admits to eating a lot of hot dogs. Timmy, I want to try something if you don't mind.
4: Walk me through one of your days.
0: Okay, well, I uh, wake up and I take a shower. And I, you know, get ready for work. And I go downstairs and I have a bagel and something for breakfast.
4: And something? A hot dog. Hot dog, okay.
0: I mean, I do usually eat a hot dog there. Okay. Then I take the train to work.
4: Slow down, slow down. Does anything happen on the way to work?
0: Oh, <laughs> I almost forgot. Uh, on the way to the subway, there's a hot dog stand, so I usually have one or two. Yeah,
4: Two hot dogs.
1: Yeah. Sometimes escalation relies on things getting bigger and crazier, and then usually at the end of the sketch, somebody shoots somebody or everybody explodes or something like that. But what I love about this sketch is that the tone just deepens. The doctor goes from curious to concerned all the way to resigned, almost sad, because, you know, because Timmy eats a lot of hot dogs. What happens at lunch?
0: Oh, lunch. Well, I mean, some days I just blow through lunch, you know, because how busy I am and all. Really? Well, pretty sure I did that once.
4: Okay. Well... On the days that you're not blowing through lunch, what do you have?
0: Well, on those days, sometimes it could just be a salad. Could it? Yeah, well, but it's usually...
4: It's usually hot dogs.
0: Yeah, it's usually hot dogs. How many hot dogs? I don't know. Anywhere between one and four? Four hot dogs. Yeah, it's probably safe.
4: Well, I hope there's no more hot dogs in the day, because we're up to seven now.
0: Yeah, on second thought, that number might be a little low.
1: So, here's to the simple things. A great premise, a perfect tone, a doctor's lab coat, and seven hot dogs. Maybe more. Yeah, more. Uh, A few more. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where we are delighted to say that the summer seems to have finally broken. We're getting some borderline autumnal weather, which is to say summer weather from where I'm from, San Francisco. But that has not stopped us from seeing two different swimsuit-wearing sunbathers on the grass in MacArthur Park this week. So congratulations to them. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows for MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. We also got some help from my mom, Judith Thorne, this week, who went to Gregory Porter's concert and chatted up his manager after. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJ w, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. Thanks also to the GO! team for recording our theme music. It is called Huddle Formation. They and their label Memphis Industries provided it to us. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, there are hundreds on our website. Just go to MaximumFun.org. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You can search on any of those with the phrase, Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, that being the name of our show. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.